When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish His word that He spoke to me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And moreover, you also know that Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in time of war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went out to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do with him, and you shall bring down his gray head uh, with the blood to Sheol. And then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. And he reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. And so Solomon sat on the throne of of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. And then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. And she said, Do you come peacefully? He said, Peacefully. And then he said, I have something to say to you. She said, speak. He said, you know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. And now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. She said to him, speak. And he said, Please ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you, to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. And Bathsheba said, Very well, I will speak for you to the king. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. And then she sat on his throne and had a seat uh, brought for the king's mother. And she sat on his right. And then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. 
The king said to her, Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. She said, Let Abishag the Shumanite be given to Adonijah your brother as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, And why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask him for the kingdom also, for he is my older brother, and on his side are Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zeruiah. And then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to me and more also, if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. And now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me a house as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. And so King Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and struck him down, and he died. And and to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your estate, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David my father, and because you shared in all my father's affliction. And so Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. And when the news came to Joab, for Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. And when it was told King Solomon... Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he is beside the altar. Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go, strike him down. And so Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, The king commands, Come out. But he said, No, I will die here. And then Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. The king replied to him, Do as he has said. Strike him down and bury him, and thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head, because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself, Abner the son of Ner and the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. And so shall their blood come back on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But for David and for his descendants and for his house and for his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. Then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck him down and put him to death. And he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. The king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in the place of Joab. And the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. And then the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there. And do not go out from there to any place whatsoever. For on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain that you shall die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, What you say is good. As as my lord the king has said, so your servant will do. And so Shimei lived in Jerusalem many days. 
But it happened at the end of three years that two of Shimei's servants ran away to Achish, son of Makkah, king of Gath. And when it was told Shimei, Behold, your servants are in Gath. Shimei arose and saddled a donkey and went to Gath, to Achish, to seek his servants. And Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. And when Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and returned, the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day you go out and go to any place whatever, you shall die? And you said to me, What you say is good, I will obey. Why then have you not kept your oath to the Lord and the commandment which I commanded you? king also said to Shimei, You know in your own heart that all the harm that you did to David my father. And so the Lord will bring back your harm on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed. And the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. And then the king commanded Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. And he went out and struck him down. And he died. And so the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Let's pray. Father in heaven, quite a lengthy passage with perhaps details that we are maybe not familiar with. Yet, knowing that you have written it, and knowing that you have written it to your church, we pray that your spirit would help us to understand but not just help us to understand, O oh Lord, but that he uh, would encourage our hearts and nourish our souls, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever taken an inventory of the things that you can absolutely count on every single day of your life? The things that will absolutely happen Every day, no matter what. 100% trustworthy absolutely will happen. Now, as you take a moment to just kind of scan through everything that you touch and see and feel every day, it doesn't take very long to realize, well, there's, there's really not that many things that I can count on happening every single day, that I can rely on without a shadow of a doubt it's going to happen. Uh, to name just a, a couple of them, uh, gravity's one, right? Uh, if, I were to, if I were to take this water bottle and drop it, it would, it would go down. Uh, it would hit the floor. Uh, some of us, when we roll out of the bed in the morning, some of us feel the toll that gravity has taken on our bodies over the course of many decades, more than others, perhaps. But gravity is, is a reality, no doubt about it. Uh, another one may be sunrise and, and sunset. Every single day since the Lord God created the heavens and the earth, the sun has risen and the sun has set. Encounterment. Another one, perhaps, may be time. Right? Time doesn't stop. Time always keeps going. If your clock stops, it's not because time itself has stopped. It's because you've got dead batteries. Right? Time always moves forward. You can't stop time. But on top of that, what else can we count on? 
How about the promises of God? Can we count on the promises of God as much as we can gravity or sunrise or sunset or time? Perhaps for for some of us, that, that may be a challenge. But the scriptures from beginning to end testify to a God that always keeps his promises, right? He always keeps his promises. God always sticks to what he has promised no matter what, even when we fall short. And and that's kind of what we presented with when we open uh, to the second chapter of 1 Kings. Verse 1 begins by telling us that that the reality that we're already aware of from from chapter 1, that that David's dying, right? He, he is nearing the end of his life. His body is slowing down. Time, gravity, everything has taken its toll on his body, and he is dying, and everyone's aware of that fact. In verse 2, David himself recognizes the fact that he's about to die. He tells Solomon, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. In other words, my days here on this earth are drawing near to an end. And so just thinking... Uh, what's the natural thing for a leader to do when he's on the way out? Especially if he wants the entity which he's leading to succeed and to thrive and to grow and to do well. Well, it's obviously to to prepare whoever's coming behind him. And that's exactly what we see David doing. Uh, In verses 3 or 2 through 4, we see David charging Solomon... Uh, exhorting him uh, from the book of the law. And he begins in verse, uh, verse 2. Uh, Be strong and show yourself a man. Now, now that's an interesting charge, uh, at least from my reading, uh, because I think it's based off of who David has been for the back half or the back two-thirds of the book of Second Samuel. If you were to go speed read the book of 2 Samuel, you would realize that, that David uh, isn't as great of a leader as you might imagine him being uh, in the back two-thirds of that book. Every, uh, after 2 Samuel 11, he, he just doesn't seem to be quite the same man. Uh, we talked about last week in 1 Kings chapter 1 how David uh, was perhaps a bit passive, uh, both in his being king right, in leading the kingdom and, and, and not taking steps to replace himself earlier, but also in his, his parenting, right? Adonai, the, the text explicitly says that, that David had said nothing to Adonijah regarding all the, the men that he had going in front of him and all of, his, all of his preparings to take over the kingship. And so it's interesting that David is now charging Solomon, don't do that. Be strong and show yourself a man. Now, that's not just a command that doesn't have parameters, right? What, what follows provides sort of the guardrails within which David is to be strong and be a man. He says, keep the charge of the Lord your God, uh, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, right? David's not selling the idea that godliness is weak. 
He's not selling the idea that, that godliness in and of itself is a weak thing. He's also not selling the idea that in order to be a man, you have to be a big, gruff bouncer. Right? He, he's saying these two things go together. And that's what we know from the beginning of Korea. From the beginning, manliness, right, being strong and being a man is being godly. Those two things are compatible. But it's interesting what, what David devotes most of his attention to in his charge. Again, you can, you can hear it. It's the all-encompassing live to the Lord your God Almighty. It's a mashup of verses from Deuteronomy. He's basically charging him from the law of God, saying, be a man who loves the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? Keep the charge of your Lord. Walk in His ways. Keep His statutes, His commandments, His rules, His testimonies as they are written in the law of Moses. And Solomon's just commanded to, to be a godly man. Right? This king thing that's ahead of you, all you, all you have to do to be successful is just, just, just be a God, just love God and follow God. And as a result of Solomon's faithfulness to love the Lord his God, God promises to take care of him and to take care of the people of Israel. It's that, that's what that, that, that means in verse 3. Right? Keep all these things as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Right? God promises, be a godly man and, and your work as a king will prosper. It will grow. It will abound. The people of Israel, I will bless them. I will take care of them. And it's not only a promise that God's making here and now, but this is a promise that, that, that God made to David a long time ago. Here in the first four verses, we learn that, that through simple obedience, God would fulfill, he would, catch word, establish the word that he spoke to David long time ago, again, way back in 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 through 17, which is, one of, this is what he promises there, if your sons pay close attention to their way and to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all, your, with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. You see what God's promising? He's promising to keep the promise that he made to David way back in 2 Samuel 7 long time ago. Now, on the surface, the, nothing really seems surprising about that, right? right? We know, at least intellectually, God keeps His promises. God doesn't forget His promises. He does what He says He's going to do. But if we take just, just a moment to consider all the water that's passed under the bridge since God made that promise, we might be a little bit more surprised. Right, so God promises David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you know, I, I will never uh, let your, the throne of Israel be without one of your sons if they remain faithful to me. Now since then, what the book of 2 Samuel was mostly full of was unfaithfulness. In 2 Samuel 
chapter 11, David sent his men to war, and he stayed home. If we were being really mean, we could classify him as maybe perhaps a coward, perhaps lazy, whichever. But at the least, he was not with his men, whereas he, he used to go out with them, and he used to lead them to war. Also in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David had an affair with the wife of one of his soldiers. So secondly, we could classify David as a convicted adulterer. Later on in chapter 11, David had that soldier killed, right? The, the husband of the woman he's just had an affair with. He had that man killed so that he would not be found out. So thirdly, we could perhaps put the label on him convicted murderer. Chapter 13, David sits back while some egregious, very egregious things happen inside his own house. Seemingly does nothing. Verse, or chapter 14, David sits back to the point to where one of his sons kills the other son for doing this egregious thing. That's five. In chapters 15 to 19, David still kind of sits back while one of his sons quietly sets up a coup and runs David out of Jerusalem. He's on the run again to save his life and, and until in chapter 18, uh, that son is killed so he can go back to Jerusalem. So if we wanted to attach terrible parent to those other ones, we could. Chapter 24, David conducts a census against the will of the Lord, perhaps trusting in numbers rather than trusting in the Lord God who's been so faithful to him since the very beginning. And then in 1 Kings 1, right? David is late to the show in a sense, in setting up the kingdom for success. I'm pretty new to the session here, pretty new as a teaching elder in general, but I would venture to say that if David were a member of this church, he probably would have been put under church discipline no less than half a dozen times in the book of Second Samuel alone. So kind of switching back to 1 Kings chapter 2. There have been a, there's been a lot of water under the bridge since 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God made his promise to David concerning the throne and his sons. And yet, David still knows God to be a God who keeps his promises to him. David still conceives God as remaining faithful to a promise that happened way back on the other side of a lot of life. Even even though he's done all of those messy things, all of those things that that would make us cringe, all of those things that that we kind of want to flip past really quickly in the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel, so we like people to, we like heroes, right? And David's just, he's not that. We're left at the end of second, I want another hero. But nevertheless, at the end of uh, here, David still views, he's still telling Solomon about a God who is faithful to his promises. 
A God that, that He knows to stick to His promises, even though He's done all of these different things. Even though He's got all this baggage, even though He's not been faithful according to the law, even though He's failed miserably time and time again, He still knows God to be faithful to the promise that He made so long ago. And what's the conclusion to how David views God here in the first few verses of 1 Kings 2? The God who sticks to his promises. Even when we're a mess. A big mess. God's faithfulness to his promises is as much a reality as gravity as sunset, as sunrise, as time itself. But again, don't, don't we kind of, perhaps we may know that intellectually, but, but don't we kind of struggle with that in a sense whenever we're, we're faced with affliction or suffering or whenever it's us that blows it? Right? I know all of those things are true, you know, especially for everyone else, and especially for me when times are good, but, but are those things true when things are really hard? When life is not just all put together? Don't we struggle with believing that God will keep His promises to me no matter, no matter what? Right, surely there will be either eternal consequences for me or perhaps relational consequences with me and God for for my own sexual sin or won't they be won't there be consequences for you know for hating people or for perhaps murdering someone won't there be consequences for my own failure at being a good parent or being a good leader won't there be consequences for just fill in the blank whatever sin you want to plug in If you are in Christ, that's not right. Speak the truth in love to you just for a moment and just say, that's wrong. If you think that there will be eternal consequences or relational consequences for whatever past sin that you still deal with on a daily basis or whatever past sin that you just can't seem to shake even though you know that the Lord has forgiven you for it if you think there are still consequences for that then you're wrong it's so easy to vastly underestimate the mercies of God a mercy that is so vast that not even adultery or murder or impotence or passivity can keep God's promises for being true for you in Christ. Water under the bridge is just what it is. It's water under the bridge, and it may, it may have earthly consequences. Right? Perhaps our, our actions may lead to a break in a relationship. It may lead to uh, earthly consequences such as, well, if David were tried for his sin of murdering that man, he certainly would have been sent to jail. 
right? Passivity has its own consequences as, as well, but, but it's false to believe, it's false to believe that we can atone for those things by being sorry for them or for, 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 for holding on to shame for them, or it's false to believe that the eternal security or love of the Father is less because of those things, right? Forgiven sin is forgiven sin. In Christ, it's done. Again, it's the, the passage that, that we heard preached this morning. It is finished. We can't atone for our past sin by being shameful over it or for holding on to it. Christ has already, it's not, we can't do it. Christ has already done it. And in Christ, we have been fully forgiven, fully pardoned. And even as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, as we have been regenerated, we have already been made holy. What a different view of sin that the Bible offers than our then we tend to think when things get hard. Now that may still leave us asking for a moment, okay, how can it be? How can it be that, 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 that one man can die and I be totally absolved of my sin, of course, by trusting in him? Even wonderful news it's kind of hard to digest and, and so big that it takes a long time to digest sometimes. We need to know more. What will, let's look at it. On the cross, Christ, like I just said, atoned for our sin completely, fully, finally. It's finished. It's done, right? The, the debt has been paid on the cross. But that's not the only thing that He's done on the cross. In and through Christ on the cross, God has silenced, has neutralized his enemies. One in particular, the devil himself. We see a similar kind of God neutralizing the enemies of the people of Israel, the, the enemies of Solomon, and, and by, by extension, his own enemies, uh, in the rest of the passage in verses 5 through 46. The rest of David's charge in verses 5 to 12 is David warning Solomon about potential or, or already existing enemies to the kingdom of God. First, he offers advice regarding Joab, right? Uh, this man, as we read in the, in, in the book of 2 Samuel, some things are good, some things not so good. Uh, and he's kind of a loose cannon. And David points out particularly that he killed two men in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war. And not only that, uh, but, but commentators realized, uh, recognized the fact that, that Joab had southern connections. In other words, he had a favor toward uh, the people in the southern part of the kingdom, which may potentially be a risk uh, to a unified kingdom, which was the goal for Solomon to attain. And the same goes for Shimei in verses 8 and 9. Uh, David brings up the fact this man is not trustworthy. Uh, this man cursed David to his face. And moreover, commentators point out the fact that this man perhaps might have had northern 
relations, a strong connection to the north. And, and again, so a unified kingdom would have been hard for, for Solomon to grasp with this man inside the picture. But he gives praise to Barzillai, this man who was faithful to the king, just an ordinary faithful man. And so David commands Solomon to deal with Joab and with Shimei, who instead of having reputations of righteousness and uh, good reputations in the kingdom, have sinned against David and the Lord and pose a risk to the security of the kingdom. Interestingly enough, for a man uh, that had all of First and Second Samuel kind of centered around him as the main character, only two verses here are offered uh, as an explanation or as kind of a, a eulogy for his death. Verses 10 and 11, David slept with his fathers, was buried in the city of David, and the time that David reigned over the kingdom of Israel was 40 years, seven in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem, signaling the fact that the kingdom is no longer David's but has been passed down to Solomon. And Solomon sat on the throne of David his father and his kingdom and was firmly established. Key words. How is his kingdom firmly established? Established. Well, again, it's by, it's by taking care of the enemies of the kingdom, by neutralizing the enemies to the kingdom of God. Verses 13 to 25, uses, uh, Solomon uh, deals with Adonijah, right? We, we knew that the ending to 1 Kings chapter 1 was too good to be true. Adonijah uh, is, is spared of his life by Solomon, Solomon simply says, if you prove yourself to be a good man, you can live forever, right? I'm not going to do anything. And the, next, the, the very next thing we see Adonijah doing is making him move for the throne again. And so tactfully, he doesn't just do it in front of Solomon. He goes to, he goes to Bathsheba and try to, tries to work his way in to Solomon through Bathsheba. But Solomon, being the wise man that he already is, uh, sees through Adonijah's move to what it actually is, which is a threat, and acts accordingly. Adonijah is out of the picture. In verses 26 to 27, Solomon removes Abiathar, one of Adonijah's compadres from chapter 1. He removes him from priesthood. Remember, this guy had more or less anointed Adonijah to be king before it was a fake anointing. Nevertheless, this man was on Adonijah's team, but Solomon's actions against Abiathar are not arbitrary, right? This man was not a good man. Stripping him of his ordination was was not only the right thing to do, it was actually the fulfillment of a promise that God had made a long time ago at the beginning of 1 Samuel concerning Eli the priest in Shiloh. Even, Even now God is carrying out his purposes through the actions of Solomon. Verses 28 to 35, Solomon takes the advice of his father uh, and deals with Joab. Right? Not only does David have dirt on Joab, but Solomon has his own dirt on, on Joab as well. Joab was one of Adonijah's main men in chapter 1, uh, alongside Abiathar. Joab was a threat to David in the, in the same way Joab is a threat to Solomon. Right? He's, he's a risk. And he's a man who's done evil things. 
And so Solomon acts and neutralizes one of the enemies of the kingdom. In verses 36 to 46, Solomon again acts decisively according to his vow to Shimei when he breaks the terms of the agreement. Solomon again set clear boundaries. Uh, Shimei, stay in this particular region. Don't leave. If you leave, you know what's going to happen. It works for a while. Shimei finds out his servants are gone, goes to get his servants, come back. Solomon's there waiting on him, and Solomon does exactly what he said he was going to do. Right? He, he kept his word. He, act, he acted decisively. Um, and so Shimei is now out of the picture. Not a few uh, commentators take a pretty negative view of what Solomon's doing here. Uh, they, they, they view him as, as being reckless, as being uh, as on a, a power high, perhaps. And perhaps we could sit here all evening and, and debate whether, the fact that, whether uh, Solomon's actions were right or wrong or sinful or not sinful. I personally uh, take the view that, that, that Solomon's doing exactly what he should be doing. And that through Solomon, God is doing exactly what he said he would do. Right, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised that he would establish the kingdom into David's son's hands. No less than four times is the, the verb, the same verb as used in 2 Samuel 7, used here in this chapter through and in and around Solomon's actions. God is doing exactly what he said he would do. He's living up to who he said he would be. He's fulfilling his promises through Solomon. God has fulfilled his promises. He's neutralized his enemies and he has secured his people. Now, there is a contrast between the way that, that, that Solomon goes about securing or God establishes the kingdom through Solomon. There, there's a contrast between the way that God establishes the kingdom through Solomon and, and how he also establishes the kingdom uh, through Christ Jesus, right? Solomon's uh, establishment of his kingdom is temporary. Uh, in just a handful of chapters, the kingdom is going to be in a mess. Through Christ, God establishes his kingdom forever. Solomon establishes his kingdom by the sword. Jesus establishes his kingdom uh, by a cross. Solomon establishes his kingdom through the shedding of other people's blood. Christ establishes his kingdom through the shedding of his own blood. Right, the either way, in both cases, the enemies of God have been silenced. They have been neutralized. And the question then becomes, as we were thinking about this morning, why does, why does Christ do it this way as opposed to the way of Solomon? Why does, why does He shed His own blood rather than shedding the blood of others? Why does He sacrifice Himself on a cross rather than using a sword and establishing the kingdom that way? It's because... He was dying for the sins of his people. 
As we said a few, a few moments ago, the, the, Christ was atoning for the sins of His people. Christ took upon Himself the wrath of God that we deserve so that He could establish His kingdom that way and His people could live in security forever without ever worrying if, if their sins were covered or not. It was done. It was final. Christ atoned for the sin of his, sins of His people and secured them. He also shut the mouth of the enemy. Right? There are no more enemies of the kingdom to, 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 to point and say those people are evil. You know, the kind of, I love the image uh, of Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, where we kind of have this, this, this scene in the heavenly courtroom, it seems, and, and Zechariah prophesies, he says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So there we have the language of Satan, the enemy of God, accusing Joshua the high priest. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this, Joshua the high priest, a, bland, a brand plucked from the fire? What's God saying? He said, you, you have no more ground to, to accuse him. You have no more grounds uh, to... to, to to accuse him and, and of his sin. He's a brand plucked with fire. And it goes on to describe how Joshua is no longer clothed with filthy garments, but has been given new garments. His iniquity has been removed. He's been given pure vestments, a clean turban on his head. Solomon, or the Lord through Solomon, shut the mouths of the enemies of the kingdom through the shedding of blood. Through Christ, God shut the mouth of the enemy through shedding his own blood. In other words, the enemy, like in the case of Solomon, has no more dirt on the people of God. The people of God have been clothed with clean garments. Uh, we've no reason uh, to be ashamed anymore. Because again, shame doesn't atone for sin. Only the blood of Christ does. And not only has it atoned for sin, but it has also shut the mouth of our accuser. And so, so what, do we, what do we do with that? Well, first, if all of this, if all of this is true, right? if Christ has atoned for our sin... And there is no more dirt to be dug, uh, to be thrown in our face as Christians. Right? If Christ has atoned for our sin and, and there is no more guilt on our part, then we have no reason uh, to be ashamed of our sin, but, but, but instead we embrace the fact that we have been forgiven and we use what Christ has done for us in in taking upon himself our guilt and our shame to the help of other Christians around us. As we, as we think about the fact that, that Christ has given us freedom uh, to use our past to build up the people around us, right? If sexual sin, then, then to help the, uh, our, the people around us understand how the Lord brought us out of those things. If, if murder or anger or hatred, then to, to, to tell them about how the Lord has softened our hearts, then and if it's, it's the fact that we're a struggling parent, 
or we've struggled through a season of parenting, uh, then wrapping our arms around those who are around us and walking with them through it. Forgiven sin, forgiven sin is nothing to be ashamed of. It is, however, proof that the promises of God are true for his people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the fact, O Lord, that in Christ we have been forgiven, uh, that he has made atonement for our sin, uh, that he has kept his promises to us. Uh, Lord, that, that in Christ we are fully and finally forgiven. Father, we also pray uh, that you would help us to, to think of that not, not only in our minds but in our hearts. And Lord, we would embrace the fact that we have been forgiven in the past and that we might move on from that and walk, oh Lord, that we might be dangerous tools, dangerous weapons in your hands for your kingdom. Father, we pray uh, that we would use the forgiveness of Christ uh, not only to testify to the fact that you are a good God who loves his people, but that you would also uh, help us to use that to minister uh, to those who you've providentially put around us. Lord, we thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.